0: the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for listening to the show. We are here with the Offshore Oil & Gas Podcast. The show is sponsored by Tidewater Marine. They're a premier service provider for the offshore industry with operations around the globe. We are here with Patrick Pister from
1: Cypro. Cypro, I'm the marketing manager here at Cypro.
0: Thank you for coming out. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate everything you're offering up here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy.
0: So, the show is focused on the offshore sector, and from everything I understand, you've got quite a history in that realm.
1: Yeah, actually, so my degree was in marine transportation, which directly feeds into the offshore shipping world. And at the time, the professors down there, they, they kind of looked down on the oil field. So I started off on oil tankers. You know, if you're not blue water, you're not a sailor. So I started off on oil tankers. But 90 days on, 90 days off, it really loses its luster after a while. So made a quick transition over into the deep water drilling. Spent some time in the Black Sea in Turkey, Gulf of Mexico. The majority of my time was in Angola. And then doing projects in the Gulf of Mexico. Spent about a year in Australia as well.
0: Well, That's great. So you've seen around the world. I did an interview for the show yesterday talking to a gentleman who does underwater welding. And he's had many of the same stories, all the... All the production fields, all the different operations around the world.
1: Those underwater welders are a little crazy, little <laughs> interesting yeah. guys.
0: He had a great story about uh, fighting sharks <laughs> <laughs> in the bar. So that was a whole other story. But so, so your background got you into the industry, and you've traveled the world, seen the different sectors. And then more recently, I know you got into the podcasting world. You've been on uh, the HSSE podcast here at the OGGN. What brought you into that realm?
1: I thought I was going to get out of oil and gas. So (laughs) I was actually, that was when I was working in Angola. I was looking to get back to the Gulf of Mexico, didn't get a transfer. So I decided to go back and get my MBA, went to U of H for my MBA, and while I was there, is when the Deepwater Macondo incident happened. You know, it's a it's a long shot, but if I would have transferred at the time back to the Gulf of Mexico, there were Transocean had two rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. That was that was one of them. So I had intended to come back and focus on finance and marketing and maybe transition into something else. Oilfield has a way of pulling you back in. So, yes, it does. Yep. Yes. So while I was still at school, I got on with Pride International in their management training, their fast track program. I was home based out of Houston. And that's when the ENSCO merger happened, which was I think the second largest deep water drilling contractor merger at the time. Spent about six months with them before going over to Atwood Oceanics and again, staying in oil and gas and operations. But I dabbled in sales and marketing, HSC and process improvement. When the, kind of at the, the worst of the downturn, I took my package when I was with Sea drill started my own consulting business and then transitioned over here into San Antonio with SitePro. For a, they do a uh, automation software for fluid management. So I'm doing the, the marketing for them, and they, you know, they really embrace the digital side of things, which is what you know, really our industry needs to be moving to and is and starting to.
0: Yeah, I listened to the interview with I think your VP and another gentleman. They were on the Contractor Connect podcast through. It's not the OGGN but yeah, but still good guys. Yeah. Ryan Rice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we see him at conferences all the time. And every time he has a new show or, you know, a a topic that interests me, I, I get our VP or, you know, somebody in our group to, to reach out to him. And yeah, Ryan's a great guy.
0: Yeah, he is. I was actually on the same show. I was on a few episodes later, but I was on the same show for my day job, which doing research on you and, and site pro that actually, I got tons of questions for that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) None of that is offshore, (laughs) offshore related.
1: So, well, it it is similar because I was very surprised coming to the Cypro, the kind of the the digital aspects of oil and gas that we weren't doing offshore. We were doing, you know, massive Bayright mud drill base oil, all those transfers. And it was paper tickets. You put the ticket in a bucket, you pass it to the workboat. You both sound your tanks. You decide, yeah, that sounds about right. What we transferred hand signature and you take a copy, they take a copy. Nothing was digital. It was, you know, you, you think with that much money and that much product being transferred that there'd be a meter. Well, yeah. Uh, and and yeah. I, all, <laughs> all our P tanks, none of the scales work. So you're manually strapping tanks.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm learning about offshore every show that I do, every interview that I do, I've spent my life onshore, of course. So that's very surprising to me. I would have <laughs> completely thought that that would just the size, the scale, the time frame of just putting one of those projects in place. You'd think that they'd have all that.
1: Well, yeah, you think of the money. So we at the time and it's, it's creeping back up, but it's, it's a ways with, you know, the rigs rate was half a million a day for a, you know an operator to contract, right. but their spread cost was another million and a half. So you're looking at about two millions, $2 million a day just for that rig to sit there. That's not doing anything else. That's not, you know. Do it, I mean, if it's on standby, it's $2 million a day for the operator. So it's a lot of money that's still being done, a lot of it by pen and paper. And then when you get into incident investigations, you're going in their stacks and they've got boxes and boxes of paper, JSAs that you're trying to comb through and find the right dates and the jobs that were associated with it. So going back in and doing an incidents. So when you're doing the work, yeah, paper's annoying. When you actually have to go back and do some kind of audit or investigation, it gets 10 times worse. <laughs>
0: No, I understand that JSA is just for the trucking operations that I do every day is it's a, it's a beast to track them and file them and, and actually get any real value out of them day to day. I mean, it's quickly can be pencil whipped by anybody that's filling them out. So understand that completely. And that's something that you guys are working on. I know many of your automations with SitePro is about fluid handling, site management, and those kind of operations, primarily.
1: Yeah, and you you have similar issues offshore. Uh, actually, one of my one of my first weeks offshore, we were transferring drill water, which is fresh water. It's you know benign fresh water through soft hose. The thing about transferring through soft hose boat to boat is you have to watch for the kinks immediately when you start up. You, you know it'll it'll pressure wrap itself. Up. up. Yeah, it'll it'll yeah. pressure up and wrap itself up. I had never transferred through soft hose, so I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to and watching through it or watching for it. And immediately get a kink. I go to re- get my radio to shut things down. Didn't realize how fast it pressures up. And we, you know, we had a spill. I was brand new to the industry. We spilled water, fresh water into salt water. All right, let's just get a new hose, send it off. But the work boat reported the spill. So, uh, you know, my first week I get chewed out for not reporting a spill. I was like, it was fresh water into salt water. You don't think that, well, it's a spill. You it's have to lost log product. It is. It's, it's, it's a yeah. lost product. It's lost to a uh, loss of primary containment. And the point of those is to capture incidents so you can prevent future incidents. It doesn't matter that it was freshwater into water. What if the next time it was base oil or, you know, synthetic base mud?
0: Okay, yeah, that makes very clear sense because, so, y- yeah, you don't know today, it's water, tomorrow, any other product. So where did, so is that kind of what got you interested in HSSE and, and that sector of the business?
1: I feel like anybody who's worked in the oil field, and I think you know, I'm, I'm a little biased, but deep water, it's expensive. There's, you know, a higher, eh, not a higher risk They're They're just, you know, it's, I don't want to insult anybody who's working on land. It just, we have this, uh, this sense of gravitas being offshore. So working offshore got me, you know, identifying hazards and being sometimes overly cautious. I, and you know, you look up to live, you don't Driving down the, down the road, I would always tell people, like, just the craziness of driving under a crane that's working on construction downtown, Houston, San Antonio, wherever. And people thought it was crazy. And then, what, two years ago, a crane fell in New York on those cars and killed a couple of people. Right. The fact that they boom over the road, it boggles my mind. Because it's not the load that you're only worried about. You're worried about the boom coming down. And I was on a rig where the main line snapped and the boom came down and landed on the workboat. So, things like that do happen. So, working around that equipment, understanding the hazards that exist got me more aware of it. And then when I transitioned into process improvement, where you're trying to make, you know, these not just incremental changes, but vast changes to the operations to improve safety numbers, cost cutting, you have to look at everything. You have to look at not just the likelihood, but what is is the worst case scenario? And I actually had a manager who was very honest about it and that, you know, some people will say there's, there's no limit to how much we'll spend to keep people safe. That's not entirely true. Because if that was true and you had a single incident, you would shut down operations, you wouldn't do business. Well, that's, you're not going to do that. You're going to keep operating. So the manager, he was very frank. He's like, there is a limit to how much we will spend. If I had to spend $10 million to make sure that you went out on the rig and you didn't get hurt, that's too much money. How can I pair that back to something that's reasonable? Because we could put you in a, you know, full suit of armor right? in the house. You're not going to be doing any hazardous work, but it's not reasonable. So you have to mitigate the risks and eliminate everything you can and I do believe there's no accident. You can, everything is foreseeable, but it's how much attention you can put on it. And at the manager level, I would say anybody that's, that's managing people. I ask them the question, can you keep one person safe? Can you keep them from hurting themselves? The answer should be yes. I could bird dog, you walk around everywhere you go, make sure you're doing everything right. You know, and you won't, you won't get hurt because I have the experience. I'm I'm there watching you. Can you do it with two, three, four? What, What is the limit to where you can't manage that anymore? And it's, it's a lot more acute when you're offshore because you only have a certain number of people. You know, drill ships can hold 200 overflow berthing. If you put people on the workboat, you can hold a little more. But you've only got a certain number of managers that can watch everybody throughout the day. So what is your number? How many people during whatever operation you're doing can you manage safely? And also, again, not spend $10 million per person out there on the rig.
0: Right. The whole project uh, loses its goal of, turning a profit. If, if you're spending it all on staff and overhead and safety measures that just slow everything down, you got to find that balance. Yeah. And sure. the, and
1: the goal is, and I'm not saying, you know, the goal is to keep that drill bit turned to the right. right. And there's a limit to, you know, during certain operations, people focused on safety, they shouldn't do, but they are still like, ah, oh, come on. Like, I'm just trying to do my job. Like, yeah. All right. I'll put my gloves on later. Let's just, you know, let's just get her done and move on. But You can plan your job and not have to worry about putting your gloves on later, having the right tool. I would go out and work in the P tank space, which it's roughly five stories of just a straight drop and catwalks working around the top of them. We had a one way in, one way out. We didn't have a lot of tie off tools. I would take two or three extra wrenches. I knew I was gonna drop wrenches that could potentially kill somebody if they were in that space, but I blocked it off. I mitigated my own risk, but we didn't have the tie off, tied off tools. It wasn't worth my time to, you know, yeah. So I mitigated my own risk, but still was operating in an unsafe, you know, wh- by the book. Because for all I knew, somebody could be sleeping down there, wake up and decide to you know, move around.
0: Well, you're taking the personal responsibility to do that when not everybody would, right? And, you know, that's kind of where management and supervision comes in to make sure y- y- you're forcing personal responsibility in a way when the goal would just be for them to own it, know what's right, what's wrong and, and do that. But fortunately, people don't always do that.
1: Well, you, you put it in a good way because there's this this back and forth between this procedural safety and personal safety. And the procedural safety is what should be written into your policies, procedures, into the JSA designed to prevent you from doing something that's unsafe. Your personal safety is you taking the time to realize if I cut a corner, I'm putting myself at risk. The problem with that is if you've seen how procedures get written, they're not always done by the most trained expert or even if they are, they may not know the operation. Two good examples, a company I worked for was redoing the the JSA system and the procedures. Well, there was hundreds of procedures that had to get rewritten in this new format, so they paid the the administrators to do it. So some of the lowest paid people in the office with the least amount of experience were responsible for taking the information and converting it into this new format. Another, sorry, this was a, yeah, it was another rig I was working on in Singapore had an experienced, well-seasoned chief mate writing procedures. His title, his experience should say he knows enough about operations to write these procedures, but he had never worked with dry bulk products. So he'd never shipped dry bulk products. He'd only ever shipped fluid. With fluids, you start up slowly, make sure there's no leaks and then you ramp up, you know. But with dry bulk, you can't do that or you're plugged lines. You have to start with air and you're going full bore the whole time. So he was writing the procedure for dry bulk, but he started talk using language, you know, start out slow, ship. And I, I caught him and in the conversation, realized he had never worked with this type of product. So even if you're putting somebody that's experienced based on their resume on the job to write a procedure or do the work, that doesn't mean they've actually done it and know all the hazards.
0: Yeah, and policies don't always come at the right they don't always get implemented at the most ideal times. I've I've listened and, and read some different leadership material and and maybe not necessarily for HSSE, maybe to a degree, but I've heard policies referenced as business scar tissue, right? <laughs> Somebody screwed up yeah. and they made a policy to mit, try to mitigate that yeah. in the future.
1: They say they're written in blood. And right. Yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. So but then those get overly cumbersome, they get changed and diluted. And, and like your story, you have people that aren't the most equipped to write those policies now, you know, dictating all the operations.
1: So you deal with them on a daily basis. I'll ask you, if you're if you're doing a job and you get a procedure handed to you, how thorough should it be in your mind?
0: It should be, well, <laughs> you have to look at the what the operation right? is. At the most basic level, I think it should be detailed enough where Somebody could read it and do the job without external training for the most.
1: Part. That And I love the way you put that because I have the same thought that a procedure should be there to get anybody off the street right. who has a basic understanding of what they're doing, should be able to do that job safely. It's it's when you start talking to the experienced hands that want to say that I don't need a procedure to tell me how to do my job, but sometimes those are the guys that miss Right, And I, I'll agree with them that they are experienced enough to do the job without it. It's there to help them to catch them. What their experience is there to do is to speed up their process, to yeah. make them to be Efficiency. more efficient, yeah. and to, and to troubleshoot if something goes wrong because equipment breaks, wears down. They're there to step in. So I love that you say that. I really want to see comments on this because I know people get very heated about yeah. policies and procedures, <laughs> like because they will. Like I don't need to see any any documentation. I don't need a checklist. I know what I'm doing. And when I was in the office writing on me, I was putting hyperlinks into drawings that were, you know, stored in the PDF of the equipment, because if somebody was doing the job for the first time, I wanted them to have access to it. I didn't ever want to mandate that you had to go in and look at the, you know, exploded view drawing to know exactly how the equipment worked, but I wanted it to be there if somebody needed it.
0: Yeah. You have to have it available to them. Kind of draws parallels to, you know, SDS sheets and and those kind of things you you won't need the information
1: they'll always be MSD to me. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to switch it. Yeah. But we provide the information and it's still on that person, that individual doing the job to go get the information, double check. I mean, yeah, you know, hey, I don't want to get this in the eyes, but do you really need to know exactly what it's going to do to your eyes if you get it in there? No, just don't get it in your eyes, yep. you know? So understand that world. So you've got a wealth of experience, an offshore. My whole plan with this podcast is I'm learning, hopefully along with the audience, right? I come from a road transport, onshore oil and gas background, and I want to learn and bring the audience along. So one of the things I've had a big thought with is, is the main difference between say onshore and offshore oil and gas production. Is there a good thought that you have on that or a summary to how those two maybe parallel each other?
1: I mean, it, it does get more expensive the further offshore you get. I, I, I was at a seminar once and they equated the volumes that you're looking at offshore. When you look at, so you can equate oil and gas to biomass. If you look at elephants to ants. Okay. Worldwide, the biomass is more ants in the world, you know, pound for pound more ants than there are elephants. However, they're spread out. You can't just scoop up an entire one to equal numbers. So they equated it to offshore has the elephants. They're expensive to find. They're expensive to extract out of the ground. But the onshore is the ants. You can find a lot more pockets, but you're going site to site or, you know, the pads drilling multiple wells to get those ants in. Now, there's some people that think that the we have to go back offshore. Eventually, the plays are going to be more expensive on land and it's going to be more cost effective to go after those elephants that's as far as the exploration goes but like i said it's it's more expensive the pays are pays higher so the further away from land you get the higher the roustabouts and the roughnecks are going to get paid however the you know the little more time you're spending offshore overseas was four weeks at a time and that's not even talking about tidewater because their schedules are a two on one off and i've got somebody's doing that schedule okay. it, yeah so they work four weeks on two weeks off for most of them so that's a lot of time to be gone I know guys that come and work offshore from land, they want week on, week off. They want to get home as, you know, they want to turn around as quickly as possible. That's more expensive for the drilling contractors to fly, so they want longer. Coming to the onshore world, you know, I do equate it to the the land guys are a little, little bit more of the cowboys. They're less worried about safety and regulation, and if they have a spill, they'll clean it up themselves as long as, you know, it stays within the, the secondary containment. Offshore, loss of primary containment is going to be reported. But there's different rules. I mean, you can you can have synthetic based mud go directly into the ocean if it emanates from the well bore. You can't have it go over the side. You can't spill cement into the sea, but if you're moving locations in Turkey, you can just, you know, set the crane up with the hose off the off the side and you just pump it into the sea. So it's there are a lot more regulations, but I feel like there are just as many ways around those. Not I wouldn't say ways around them, but you know, exceptions, legal exceptions to the rules. Right.
0: No, this that the scale alone is is and the analogy of ants and elephants makes that makes a lot of sense. That, that's very clear to me. And, and
1: think about products too. What your your tanks? One hundred and twenty barrels of produced water that you're you're transporting in a single load. Crude oil, but
0: yeah, yeah. we're doing one hundred and eighty barrels. Okay. Every time.
1: And then you think you know that same amount of synthetic based mud is sorry, not even same amount. That's you know the same product can be shipped. The entire workboat, you know, tide water could fill up their their tanks, and I don't even know how many barrels they. You
0: <laughs> yeah, haven't gotten to them yet. The, I'm <laughs> trying to get them on here eventually, but yeah, the the scale, the the other part was the the time frame. Like I know, permitting and licensing and planning to drill one single wellhead on land takes takes some time, but the the scale and the life expectancy of a project offshore is, is quite substantial. You're not going to even start that unless you can make sure it's going to live for, I mean, years.
1: Well, that's decades, it. And or? it actually depends on where you want to consider the start. Do you, do you consider it at the, you know, the, the lease sale offshore, because that's several years away from getting developed and they have time frames when they have to go in and, and punch a hole. But even after the EMP or the exploration happens, you're one, two, three plus years away from first oil, so the it always it always made me chuckle a little bit when you know the price of oil dips and rises and the rig activity or the day rates go up and down based on that. But you're not basing what you're what's coming out of the ground on the price of oil today. It's three years away from first oil. They're gonna you know they're not gonna complete it for several years or whenever they want to. Now they are going to you know, make some interpretations and figure out how much is expected to be down there. That's going to go on their books based on prices so they can borrow against that. So there is a lot of financial implications, but that oil is not coming into the ground for several years.
0: Yeah. So a huge investment up front before you even get a single barrel produced. And then what's the average life expectancy of an offshore well
1: now you're getting a little more technical than okay. i but, it, but it's years i mean it, it's, I, it's yeah. I, mean, I would wager to say some of them were decades i that's mean it's, I it's a lot so when you think of the decline curves of land drilling it and, and yeah and it, it drops substantially and then you have the larger operators they'll sell it to the smaller ones that can you know increase it by a barrel to a day and that's enough to turn them a profit offshore it's you know they're getting you know small percentages out of it because it it's not cost effective to go in to stimulate those wells so you know whenever And you ask Mark, we'll never reach peak oil. But if we ever got to the point, there is a ton of oil still in old wells that will never come out of the ground offshore. It's just not cost-effective to go out and stimulate some of those. So those wells are drilled. So in, you know, 500 years, we we can go back and (laughs) drill through that cement.
0: Our technology's improved. We can, you know.
1: I'm sorry, we'll be all electric in 10 years? Yeah, the (laughs) yeah,
0: the All the ships will be electric offshore. We'll have cables running out there to the boats. Yep. So good parallel between land and offshore. How about from a safety or an HSSE standpoint? Obviously, we've talked about greater regulation offshore, but just from an operating standpoint, do you see any big differences between those two sectors?
1: Well, and just starting off with the reporting, an offshore environmental incident is, it's publicized, it makes the news. Onshore HSE events, sorry, sorry, onshore environmental incidents don't typically make the news.
0: Is that because of scale, though? Like, I would assume if you had something offshore, it's probably going to be bigger.
1: Than- well, I think it's a lot of things because one, everything offshore gets reported. If there's a sheen, if there's a if there's a spill, that's going into a reporting database that can easily be accessed by reporters, by politicians, by anybody. Onshore, smaller spills, sorry, spills of the same size may or may not get reported. If they can clean it up, if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't cause any adverse effects, if it's just, if you're sending a news camera out, focus on a puddle versus this big sheen that's stretching miles, it could be the same volume, but on the flip side, safety events, a worker killed in the Gulf of Mexico, will spread through the offshore employee community. Like, you know about it as soon as it happens. Somebody's calling, texting, emailing. That doesn't typically make the news, but a worker killed and on a rig out in West Texas, local news is going to pick that up. There's ambulances. It's it's a lot easier to, to have a story about that. So environmental offshore is always a bigger deal. Safety events involving people doesn't really make the news offshore so it's it's flip-flopped that being said I know a lot of the deep water drilling contractors uh, I used to be on the board of directors for the IDC the Houston chapter and the deep water co- drilling contractors did not like the land drilling contractors really being associated in with the same metrics because they felt that they were less safe that there were more incidents being reported maybe not publicized but more incidents being reported health, safety, or environment. And the offshore guys felt that they were at a higher standard. That they managed their safety better than onshore and they didn't, didn't want to be in the same boat. Now that, you know, it's when you're talking about it, it really comes down to people. I mean, you want everybody to come home safe every day and whether you're offshore or onshore, that is the goal. But there, there was a perception that the further offshore you are, the higher your standard is, the closer to the rotary onshore, the, the lower your regulation, or sorry, the lower your reporting and and safety management is.
0: Yeah. And that is something I see in, I think all, let's call it safety sensitive operations, right? And especially when you're looking company to company or peer to peer, you're always wondering, is that an accurate number? Did they really report everything that they have to? The easy assumption is well, they probably didn't. They well, probably it, but didn't. But it's never apples to
1: her. apples. Right. The the reporting, what you have to do as far as measuring man hours and I think the funniest thing is the lost time incidents that you have an offshore worker that will be injured instead of making an LTI. So they'll come in, they'll you will maybe they broke up, broke their ankle. It's just as an example. Okay. They'll get treatment, but they can't go back to work doing the same thing offshore because they, you know, they can't egress out of the helicopter, they can't do stairs. So the the drilling contractor will put them in the office doing paperwork. That's not their normal job, but it avoids an LTI on their numbers. So, yeah, you had an incident that stopped him from doing his normal work, but we're not going not to count that. And the API has good metrics for drilling and what those numbers are, the standard. But as far as HSE goes, man hours, and what you call a near hit, near miss, Everybody has their own definitions, it's all internal. Right. And I used to get into debates about what is what is what do you consider an incident? A dropped object is a great example that I worked for a company that decided they weren't gonna consider a dropped object anything below two feet, let's say. I don't know if that was the exact exact number, but-
0: Wait, you say drop dodge?
1: Dropped object, sorry. Okay. Dropped object, so offshore, it's anything, there's a whole drops organization, but anything dropped is, is a big deal. It's not only a safety issue in the moment, but it could speak to other, other issues. So up in the derrick, you know, you have to log your tools before you go up. You have to make sure everything's tied off anything that falls. If you find a bolt on the ground, that's an incident, you have to report it. And you have to figure out where that bolt came from because, you know, depending on the height that could kill somebody, but this company decided anything below two feet, we're not going to, not going to report. I argued that a dropped object a dropped object and they usually do a height to mass to see what type of incident would be. And if it's low below a certain line, it doesn't get reported.
0: Like how deadly that object. Exactly. Would be. Yeah.
1: So I disagreed with that argument because you still want to capture, even if it's not going to cause an HSE event, you still want to identify trends. We keep dropping things, maybe, you know, not going to pencil off a table. It technically is a dropped object. It's never going to you know, kill anybody. But if you start having bolts fall out of equipment, well, it only fell two feet or it was below a certain, you know, newtons when it hit. We're not gonna report it. Well, you're still, you're missing the trends. Are you, are you laxed in your maintenance? Are you not catching things before they happen? So if that bolt that fell two feet, two inches wouldn't have hurt anybody, you're not gonna log it, is now boomed out and falls And you didn't catch it when it was a small incident. You, you know, you're setting yourself up.
0: We kind of go right back to that story earlier where you're talking about the hose, right? So it was just fresh water spilled in salt water, yep. but it still could have identified a trend or, or some kind of training opportunity for the next time when it's yeah. diesel or mud. or
1: And, and to, that, to that point, it was, it was probably several years later, but we were transferring synthetic-based mud off of two boats, off of port and starboard, and we had two different radios. So the I think the Derrickman was down below uh, handling the valves, and he closed one that was still operating, so the pump was still running deadheaded it i reached the to the mic to shut off the shut off the pump i grabbed the wrong radio i was talking to the wrong boat and it was that you know a couple seconds so they didn't get it shut off and we actually you know i think the spill happened down below where where the rupture happened so it was a loss of primary containment but not a loss to the environment it was in the in the ship itself exactly yeah but it was because we it was a it was an operation we'd never done before and we tried to and i i had just come on so i was like handed to radios here you go this is the operation that's happening i assume i understood what was going on but mixed up the radios at that time but like you said that that drill water spill a couple years early was that a you know precursor should we have identified something and you know nobody's going back to to look at it but so we referenced
0: jsas and cataloging jsas is that something that you're seeing from a, a technology standpoint where we have tools today or we have tools
1: coming where things like those
0: documents are being digitized
1: or we've had it since what? 95 Excel, Excel's doing it all. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a joke, but we interviewed on the HSE podcast, ops lock and they were the first most robust system I had seen to start cataloging these procedures and integrate them with digital JSAs. I had seen software do it before, but it was, it was on iPads and it was so finicky that if, it lost connection while you were uploading what you had tracked. It would be lost on the iPad. It would be lost where you were trying to send it. So nobody on the rig wanted to use an iPad to go out and do a JSA or take pictures of an incident because they knew that there was a you know 50% chance they would lose it. So everybody still tracked everything on Excel. Uh, if you're on a floater, your Marine crew, the, the DPOs are probably managing the permit station. So they're filling out all the paperwork. They're keeping things logged. They're also making sure the rig stays on location. And then they're logging everything, usually in Excel. And I've seen some advanced ones where, you know, somebody went in and wrote some macros. So it's searchable, sortable. They followed their numbering system, made it real easy. But the opstock was the, the most robust I've seen. I think that interview was maybe a year ago. I don't know how prolific they are right now, but I do joke that any software just needs to make their front end look like Excel. And Everybody, everybody, yeah, everybody will accept it. it. You know, make your back end as robust as, as you want, but that front end's got to look like Excel. But it is changing; it's getting better. What Cypress is doing with the automation side of things, again, it's it sh- seems like it should have happened years ago, but it's just now really getting it. You know, people are trying to be more efficient, do do more with less, improve operations and scale, and it's it is permeating to the permits and the JSAs.
0: And I've I've seen that myself as well. I've seen companies like SitePro and and other automation companies starting to digitize the oil field. Right, Di- the digital oil field is is here and and growing. But a lot of that comes from smaller companies that are nimble. They can respond. They can take an idea and run with it. It doesn't seem like the offshore sector really would allow that, just because of the scale, the really the scale, right, and, and the reach. Like, you can't just go visit those guys offshore. Do you see smaller companies maybe in the technology space or really any space that are kind of helping to get into that realm?
1: I would say it as far as onshore and offshore, it's how things are sold into the industry. And it's, it was a stark difference. Offshore, the operators, the BP shells, Chevron, Exxon, they dictate what is going to happen. Onshore. It's not that way. Trucking companies have so much more power. If I'm gonna drop off my produced water here, but you want me to use your system and and my truck drivers don't like it, we're not gonna drop them off at your SWD. We're gonna go down the road and they're gonna get paid. Offshore, I was with a company that one of the operators decided they were changing their accounting software. And required us to change our accounting software to match if we wanted to get paid. We already had a contract in place; they were legally bound to pay us, but we had to spend. I, I want to say it was somewhere around you know 10, 20 grand just to get on this platform plus a monthly fee. But, but we already, you should be paying us. It doesn't matter. Right? No, nope, it's an operator. Operator is going to tell you how you're you're going to you're going to operate. So, it's different in how it's sold into it offshore, if you get an operator to buy in, they'll push it down to all their service companies. That's drilling contractors, that's mud companies, that's cementers. They will make everybody adopt that system. Onshore, operators either don't have the power or don't want to flex their muscles in that way. I don't know what, what the real answer is there, but it's not the same. I do believe that when oil was $140 a barrel, you could sell anything to an operator. And I'm speaking offshore. I mean, there were. There were software programs. And I remember the most ridiculous one was a communication tool that the operator that we had in Australia at the time said that we had to communicate with vendors through this platform. So instead of sending an email to a vendor that, all right, I've, I've got the rig. I want to do a construction or you want to do a construction project. Let me talk to the contractor. No, you have to send it through this portal. And one of our employees is going to review your, your email before basically a gatekeeper before sending it off. And that that lasted a month. Nobody was using it. it was It was a terrible piece off, but they bought into it because oil was up there, and we'll yeah, we'll just buy in any system. I think when the downturn happened, and oil prices being what they are now, that offshore, you know, I'm speaking offshore, they got burned by all these softwares, all these softwares that didn't work. They were finally realizing this doesn't work, scrap it. This doesn't work, scrap it. This was proprietary or this was, yeah, this, we had this built internally. It doesn't do what we do. I took a, I took metrics from a internal software that was coded just for our company. I took the data that we wanted, put it in Excel, had a huge spreadsheet of red light, green light. Just, you know, that's how we were going to track things. I took that Excel spreadsheet and printed copies for our management review. So we went from as technology, technology advanced as you could, you know, on a proprietary system all the way back to paper for our reviews. So, like I said, the, I think the I think high oil prices really burned the software industry in oil and gas. But in the last year, year and a half, I feel like that has changed and companies are more accepting technology. Now, offshore has always appreciated technology when it comes to heavy steel. If it's technology on something you can kick with a steel toe boot, they they're the most advanced. I mean, you know, probably better than NASA. When it comes to software, I can't touch it. I can't feel it. I don't know exactly what it's doing. I, you know, they don't really trust it. And that, I feel like that's changing.
0: And, and you mean, when, when you're referencing heavy steel, you're talking about like the, the different connection tools like uh, a 20k
1: BOP that no one's drilling 20k wells but we've got a 20k BOP and all well, the rigs at the time when I was offshore was like well we've got it piped for 20k but we're never going to put one on and if we even if we do put a 20k BOP on the operator only wants to pay for it when they're using that capability so it's a small segment of the market that anybody's drilling 20k BOPs that need to be 20k but we love it we we man everybody was talking about 20k or managed pressure drilling or all these heavy steel technology, anything you could hit with a hammer, that technology, but you get, as software, Ops Lock comes to mind. There were a couple of others that we interviewed with HSE podcasts and it was just, I would joke with them. It's was like, make it look like Excel. They'll, you know, buy into it, then you'll get it adopted. And, but that is changing. Operators are trying to do more with less. They're trying to be more efficient. If you've ever been out on an incident report and tried to comb through pages and pages of hard copies. Yeah, you need hard copies for, you know, at times, but It'd be so much easier if you could search, all right, I want to know these dates, what work was going on in these dates. And if you could tag them that this work was actually affecting this job, it never should have been allowed at the same time, your incident investigation, you know, the fact finding part of it would take, you know, you know, an hour versus days of combing over and trying, you know, all right, we, I think we have enough. Let's, let's go back and start doing our investigation or, you know, our, our incident report. That was a long winded explanation for, we're, you know, we're finally adopting technology as far as software.
0: No, I, I I appreciate it. I would say just for the audience' sake, BOP blowout preventer.
1: Oh, right? I'm sorry. Yeah, and
0: 20k is it 20 thousand pounds or uh, pressure? Yeah, psi. PSI. Yeah. Okay. This is an offshore
1: podcast. Everybody knows no, that. Not everybody. everybody.
0: <laughs> there might be one guy. I I gotta ask. Uh, I gotta ask all the questions that I can. But that that's a, gra- a great cover of it. I mean, great explanation for for how the, those sectors interact. <laughs> <are> <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm learning. So we've talked about the kind of high level offshore versus onshore. We've talked about broad HSSE theories, if you will, metrics. What, what drives you through this, you know, to come back to this industry every day? How, you've, you've seen many parts of it. What, what keeps you in here?
1: Well, I, and I just got asked the other day if I miss being offshore and I do miss going out to the rigs. I don't miss having to rotate month on month off. It becomes a grind and I, you know, respect the guys that do it. It wasn't what I wanted for myself long-term, but I do miss going out and doing projects. I miss incident investigations. I miss the projects because it is dynamic. You're, you're getting on a helicopter, you're flying, you know, an hour or two in the Gulf of Mexico, or you're flying overseas and, and going out to the rigs. It's a hazardous industry and offshore. Everybody knows that. So everybody respects that, there are certain risks that are taken. Now we mitigate as much of the risk as we can to make it as safe as possible. Uh, you know, PPE should be the last line of defense, but you wanna mitigate the risks upfront. I enjoy that onshore and offshore, that it's, you know, people you can talk to, they understand if you can explain things to them, we, whether it's software or heavy steel, it has a purpose. And if it doesn't have a purpose, it's not gonna make it. So it's a, it's a very pragmatic industry That, again, when oil was $140 a barrel, maybe it wasn't so, and people were just, you know, living it up.
0: We've gotten a lot better since then. we we have.
1: You know, I don't like that offshore takes longer to come back. I don't like that people focus on the rig count so much. The rig count doesn't mean anything as far as the industry. When it comes to offshore, you want to look at day rates and lengths of contracts. If operators are signing longer-term contracts, they think prices are going to go up, that's a good thing for our industry. If they're signing shorter-term contracts, they know that prices are going to go down. So they want to follow the market down. They don't want to be tied into a three, five year contract, which was the norm, you know, five, 10 years ago. No, um, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I still have a lot of friends on work boats, on offshore platforms, on drilling rigs and, I respect what they're doing, and you know, if I can get back offshore just for a project here and there, I'd, I'd be happy. But I'd, I'd rather not do the the rotation anymore. I've got a good mix right now. I, you know, I'm I grew up in New Braunfels. I'm back here in the Hill Country. I still get to go over to to Houston when I want to. You know, Fort Worth every now and then. <laughs> but I get to drive out to West Texas and see a different side of the industry. The land drilling is different. If you haven't worked in in that sector and you've only done offshore, it's they're two different worlds. Either the language is a little bit different. I. In my marketing speak, I tend to lean towards what I knew in in the offshore, and that's not quite the language. I look used, at
0: you a little funny. A little thing. bit, and I was like,
1: oh, you know, that's that's you know, it's, it's general accepted terms. That's
0: <laughs> well. This has been great. It's very informational. I think the whole audience has hopefully learned a lot, just as well, just as much as I have, and continue to go down this rabbit trail of learning about the offshore sector and how it correlates to on land and all the other things that. Are in a realm all of their own. Is there anything else that you'd want to tell the audience either about yourself or SitePro?
1: So yeah, so like I said, I've, I've worked in operations, HSE, process improvement. I was on the marine crew when I was offshore. I worked on you know a wide range of offshore aspects. I transitioned into the sales and marketing side of things, and my focus is on on marketing. So that's what I've been doing. I did consulting for a while. If anybody has marketing questions, HSE questions, you can find me on LinkedIn or you'll know, reach out to me. But like I said, SitePro is a, a fluid management automation software company. We're, you know, gaining traction in the market. And like I said, the, the industry is more accepting these technologies. And we've got a lot of cooperative companies that we work with. And it's good to see technology really getting in there. There shouldn't be somebody standing out at a, at a valve, turning a wrench or checking on a site once every 12 hours. You know, there's a lot of technology that can get out there and do it. So I'm excited for where the industry is going onshore and offshore. I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. Automated rigs. That's what we're going to have. Oh, I think
0: we already have some,
1: right? Fully offshore automated oh, rigs. Oh, fully offshore. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I know well, was, onshore, uh, yeah, I'm going to get this wrong. Well, the rig of the future is going to have a man and a dog. The uh, <laughs> the man's there to feed the dog and the dog's there to make sure the man doesn't, you know, to bite him if he tries to touch <laughs> any of the controls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I butchered it, but that's uh... that's good.
0: <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you and hopefully the audience got great info out of it as well. For everybody listening, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. It helps us out immensely. We will uh, hopefully read your reviews on one of the future shows. Thank you. Thanks, Andy.
2: Hey, guys. We have a couple of OGGN events on deck for the next month. OGGN's next Houston Happy Hour will be on October 29th at the Cannon from 4 to 6. As always, a portion of the proceeds will go toward Redeem Ministries to fight human sex trafficking. At this happy hour, we'll be discussing the process of taking a startup from simply an idea to obtaining the first purchase orders. The panel discussion will include Saudi Aramco Ventures, Shell Ventures, NOV, SCF Ventures, Eternal Energy, and Well Diver. Our next Denver happy hour will be on November 6th. Come join us for food, drinks, and a live podcast that we will announce at a later date. A portion of this event's proceeds will go to local charities Safe House Denver and Oilfield Helping Hands. Okay, now to the events on deck. The Tamora-Leste Oil and Gas Summit 2019 will be on October 3rd through 4th in Dilley-Tamora-Leste. The SMRP third quarter West Houston chapter meeting is on October 3rd at 1130 in Houston. This event will cover the topic, Are Your PMs Preventing or Causing Failures? IPAA and TIPRO are hosting their Leaders in Industry Luncheon on October 9th in Houston. On October 14th, the Canon will be having a Disruptive Energy Workshop. The API Golf Tournament will be held on October 14th, 2019 at Kingwood Country Club. And as of right now, there are some spots still open, so be sure to check their website and register your team. The 2019 Operations and Process Technology Summit will be on October 14th through 16th in San Antonio. The summit will cover maximizing your molecular advantage, practical solutions for today, forethought for tomorrow. On October 24th, OGGN's very own Mark Lacour will be speaking at Tech to Market in Shreveport, Louisiana. The Balkans Petroleum Conference will be held on October 24th through 25th in Budva, Montenegro. The summit is the official event for the Balkans' oil and gas industries. Lastly, the George H. Bush Conference this year will be on October 28th through 29th in Houston. Honoring President George H.W. Bush, the Bush-China Conference brings together Americans and Chinese to discuss critical bilateral, regional, and global issues and to generate innovative recommendations for advancing the relationship.
0: Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas
2: Offshore Podcast. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.